Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 327 for June 5th, 2023. And uh, I forgot to mark the 10th anniversary of Snowden's revelations. That was a big deal for me. Like, like that was what caused me to write the book. And and then all this other stuff fell from fell from that. And uh, so that's a big that was a big deal. And actually, what made me think about it, it was the EFF had a nice write up about all the impacts of Snowden 10 years on. There's a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. I'm actually hoping to talk to somebody from the EFF soon, which actually might not mean for a couple of months uh, in terms of when it would air, but uh, to talk about that and some other things. Anyway, the Snowden thing was a big deal, and I was actually kind of upset over the years that more didn't happen, but this article was kind of nice. It did explain some of the things that did happen, and, and what keeps coming up more and more, and I think you're going to hear that in some interviews coming up, is that it affected a lot of other people like it affected me. It would cause them to get out there and do something. So there's that. Anyway, uh, I also forgot to mention that last week's entire episode on privacy for cars with Andrea uh, Miko, which was a great episode, uh, go back and check it if you didn't. That whole thing was meant to actually kind of be an answer to a Dear Carrie question. Abraham S. from Bahrain sent me uh, questions about privacy for cars, and I said, just wait, we got a whole episode on this. So anyway, that was a rather long Dear Carrie answer. Also, I just bought my hotel and flights for DEFCON 31, the hacker summer camp in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, coming up in August. Cannot wait for that. I'm actually going to go early this year. Part of that's because I'm going to be uh, doing a family vacation with my daughters. But also, I hope to check in on Black Hat and B-Sides, uh, which happened right before DEF CON. So I'm hoping to get a chance to look at that a little bit while I'm there, too. Now, I know some of my patrons are going. Can't wait to meet you there. We have a dedicated Discord room for this so we can coordinate and hopefully get together while we're there. And whether or not you are a patron, if you are in possession of, if you have been awarded one of my super swanky dragon challenge coins, and you meet me in person, present that for a free drink. That's one of the bonuses of having a challenge coin. Now, if you don't already have one of these coins, or if you haven't looked at them yet, you can go to fdsd.me. That's my Earl shortening service that I run myself. Go to fdsd.me slash coin2, because uh, it's the version 2.0 of the coin, and you can learn all about it there. So stay tuned after the news, and I'll have some more information about how you can get one of these puppies. But we do have a new show for you today, and there's a lot to get to. So plenty of topics to cover today. First of all, a quick PSA for those of you on Windows who are using iTunes. I'll tell you that you need to be updating that. There's some Android malware that has been downloaded over 420 million times. That's actually spread over several apps, but it's still, there's some apps that were very popular that you need to be deleting from your phone if you're using them. Also, an interesting article about brute force attacks on fingerprints, on fingerprint readers on phones. Luxottica, the company that basically makes everyone's glasses, no matter what the label says, has lost 300 million customer records. A free VPN service called SuperVPN exposed over 300 million user records when they said that they didn't log anything, and they quite obviously did. Amazon gets a slap on the wrist over privacy violations on Ring cameras. There was a KeyPass master password crack that's not nearly as bad as it sounds. Twitter has this thing called Community Notes, which I wasn't aware of, that kind of facts checks things, and they're now adding it to images, so we're going to talk a little about that. Microsoft is now scanning password-protected zip files for malware. I'll tell you how they're doing that. And then we've got a couple articles on AI, and I have a lot of things to say about this. You've probably seen these headlines. There were two of them in the last week or two that just went everywhere. I guess went viral. One of them was about a, a military pilot uh, operating a drone, and the drone killed, quote-unquote, the operator. It turns out that was not really true. And then there was this, you know, very scary letter going around signed by a bunch of experts, big name experts, with the word AI and extinction in one sentence, which drove a lot of people crazy and caused a lot of crazy headlines. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about that. And then the Brave browser has this really cool new thing called Off the Record, which hopefully will be adopted by other browsers. So we'll end on a little bit of a positive note. Then we'll have a quick Dear Curry question and my tip of the week. Coming back to that whole thing with .zip and .mov top-level domains, I, I want to give you a tip on how you can block all of those in case you just don't want to take a chance. All right, plenty to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is just a quick 
uh, public service announcement. This is from Mac Rumors. Apple released iTunes 12.12.9 on May 23rd, and it fixes an issue that could allow malicious apps to gain elevated privileges to install malware on Windows machines. While the vulnerability was addressed last week, Synopsys, the security company that discovered the problem, today shared some details on how it worked. The security company that discovered the problem today shared some details on how it worked. iTunes had a privileged folder with weak access control, allowing a malicious person to redirect the folder creation to the Windows system directory, which could then be used to obtain a higher privileged system shell. All versions of iTunes prior to 12.12.9 are impacted by this vulnerability, and so iTunes users who are running older versions of the software should make sure to update. Synopsys first discovered the problem in September of 2022 and told Apple about it at that point. Apple confirmed the vulnerability in November and then patched it in May. Not sure why it took so long. Apple did not say that this exploit was known to have been used in the wild, so it is not as critical as some other vulnerabilities, but it's still a good idea to install the latest version of iTunes right away. And as often is the case with these things, just because it's not a zero day. In other words, just because it's not already being exploited in the wild before it's patched. Once it's patched and it's known by the bad guys that the older versions of the software have this problem, they have now been alerted to this fact and will start exploiting as soon as they can. So then you really do need to get uh, updated. And on a similar subject, Lifehacker has an article here about some Android malware. It's never fun to learn about a new bout of Android malware discovered on the Play Store. It's even worse when that malware was downloaded by hundreds of millions of Android users. If you have any of the following 101 apps on your smartphone, you need to delete them ASAP and perhaps run an antivirus scan to boot. I'm not sure about that last part, but anyway, uh, and and I am not going to read all 101 apps. I'm going to give you like the top 10 most popular ones. And then if you want, you can go to the article and get the full list, which honestly, you probably should if you think you might have any of these apps. As reported by Bleeping Computer, cybersecurity company Dr. Webb discovered a new Android spyware module on the Play Store. This module scrapes data from files on your device and sends that information back to bad actors, which is kind of the antithesis of the privacy policy you want from apps on your smartphone. The module purports itself to be a marketing SDK or software development kit a framework developers can use to add specific functionality to their apps. In this case, the SDK, which Dr. Webb calls Spin OK, implements mini-games, tasks, and prizes in the apps to keep users engaged. While these actions are happening on the surface, Spin OK is sending remote service to your device information, including your gyroscope and magnetometer. This is done in an effort to evade security researchers who might be running Android in a sandboxed environment to weed out malware. Spin OK also bypasses your device's proxy settings, which enables it to hide its network connections. It can then serve you ads thanks to the connection to its remote server, which kicks off the scraping of your device's data, including listing the files on your device, the location of a specific file or directory, stealing a specific file, and even copying or replacing the contents of your clipboard. Dr. Webb's research shows SpinOK has infected 101 apps across the Play Store with over 420 million collective downloads. That poses a huge security risk for Android users around the globe. However, the top two apps on that list, Noise, that's N-O-I-Z-Z, and Zapya, Z-A-P-Y-A, encompass almost half of all those downloads. Dr. Webb highlights those apps and eight of the other most downloaded as those are the ones most likely to be on the average Android user's smartphone. So really quickly, Noise and Zappy, we just talked about those two. Those are the big ones. Vfly, MVBit, Buigo, B-I-U-G-O, Crazy Drop, Cash Zine, Fizzo Novel, Cash E-M, and Tick. Those are some weird app names. But anyway, lucky for future Android users, it appears Google has scrubbed the vast majority of these apps from the Play Store. The only exception is Zapia, which as of version 6.4.1, no longer contains the malicious Spin OK module. As such, you can't download the rest going forward, but that doesn't help you if you already installed any on your device. That's why it's important to look through the official list. Again, that's a link that you can click on if you go to this to go to the show notes and check on this article and see if you have any of those apps on your device. If so, delete it immediately. However, if you have Zapier on your device, you can just update it instead. Google removing an app from the Play Store won't affect any apps you have on your phone. So the only thing you can do is uninstall it yourself. So obviously this is not good. I really don't know how popular these things are. I mean, there's a lot of downloads. I've never heard of them. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, But but if you have these apps, uh, definitely remove them from your device. One thing I would say is I really wish that when this stuff happens, both Apple and Google, uh, when they have removed a malicious app or some other, you know, nefarious app, if it's a scam or 
just really crappy app and they and they remove it from the store for violating their policies or whatever. I really wish it would pop up something in your phone, like maybe there should be a red X on that app on your phone or at least some sort of like an exclamation point uh, in a red bubble or something so you know there's something potentially wrong with that app so that you could be notified to, to remove it. I don't know why they haven't done that. That seems like a simple thing to do. If they're obviously, if they're removing it from their app stores, then there's something really wrong with it. It seems like a simple thing to do. I don't know why they haven't done that, but I really wish they would. All right, next up, another smartphone-related uh, article. Uh, this is from Bleeping Computer. It was actually a really long article. I've tried to trim this down to the basics. There's a lot more information here if you really want to get into the you know how this hack works, but I'm just going to give you the highlights here. Researchers at Tencent Labs and Zhejiang University have presented a new attack called Brute Print, which brute forces fingerprints on modern smartphones to bypass user authentication and take control of the device. Brute force attacks rely on many trial and error attempts to crack a code, a key, a password, or gain unauthorized access to accounts, systems, and networks. The Chinese researchers managed to overcome existing safeguards on smartphones like attempt limits and liveness detection that protect against brute force attacks by exploiting what they claim are two zero-day vulnerabilities. The authors of the technical paper published on rxiv.org, A-R-X-I-V.org, also found that biometric data on fingerprint sensors serial peripheral interface, or SPI, were inadequately protected, allowing for man-in-the-middle attacks to hijack fingerprint images. Brute print and SPI man-in-the-middle attacks are tested against 10 popular smartphone models, achieving unlimited attempts on all Android and Harmony OS, which are Huawei devices, and 10 additional attempts on iOS devices or Apple devices. The idea of brute print is to perform an unlimited number of fingerprint image submissions to the target device until the user-defined fingerprint is matched. The attacker needs physical access to the target device to launch a brute print attack, access to a fingerprint database that can be acquired from academic data sets or biometric data leaks, and the necessary equipment costing around $15. So actually, it's that first part that's the tough one, getting access to the device. The researchers conducted experiments on 10 Android and iOS devices and found that all were vulnerable to at least one flaw. The tested Android devices allowed infinite fingerprint tryouts, so brute forcing the user's fingerprint and unlocking the device is practically possible given enough time. On iOS, though, the authentication security is much more robust, effectively preventing brute force attacks. Although the researchers found that iPhone SE and iPhone 7 are vulnerable to one of these bugs, they could only increase the fingerprint tryout count to 15, which isn't enough to brute force the owner's fingerprints. Regarding the SPI man-in-the-middle attack that involves hijacking the user's fingerprint image, all tested Android devices are vulnerable to it, while iPhones are again resistant. The researchers explained that the iPhone encrypts the fingerprint data on the SPI, so any interception has little value in the context of the attack. In summary, the conducted experiments showed that the time it takes to complete brute print against vulnerable devices successfully ranges between 2.9 and 13.9 hours when the user has enrolled one fingerprint. When multiple fingerprints are enrolled on the target device, the brute forcing time drops to just 0.66 to 2.78 hours as the likelihood of producing matching images increases exponentially. At first glance, brute print may not seem like a formidable attack, due to requiring prolonged access to the target device. However, this perceived limitation should not undermine its value for thieves and law enforcement. The former would allow criminals to unlock stolen devices and extract valuable private data freely. The latter scenario raises questions about privacy rights and the ethics of using such techniques to bypass device security during investigations. This constitutes a rights violation in certain jurisdictions and could undermine the safety of certain people living in oppressive countries. So basically what these guys have done, they've figured out a way to massively slam your device with multiple fingerprint opening attempts by bypassing the sensor and, and directly inputting what appears to be the sensor saying, here's a fingerprint. Is this good? And most devices have timeouts or uh, limits on how many times you can do that before it will lock or successfully get take longer and longer to open before it locks. And basically some of the things that they figured out how to do here were to bypass those things, to trick the device into letting it try multiple times in a row. On the Android devices, they figured out a way to make the Android device not count the attempts at all, so they could basically try as often as they want. And so now you've just got a computer trying a whole bunch of fingerprints uh, against this thing. And you might think, well, my fingerprint's unique, right? Well, 
the way these fingerprint readers work, and this article talks about this some, is it's it's not exact. It, it, it reads your finger, yes, but it kind of looks for certain particular interesting spots of your fingerprint and, and turns that basically into a number. And because it wants to be able to recognize your finger from different angles, or if you've got a speck of dust on your finger, or if you've got a little cut on your finger or something, you know, things that might disturb your fingerprint, it's got to be fuzzy logic. It's got to, it's got to be partial match. So if you have a database of a whole bunch of fingerprints, the, the chances are pretty good that if you try them all, one of them is close enough to your fingerprint to open the device, which is why these devices have, you know, timeouts and limits on how many attempts you can make before it'll shut, shut off and not let you do anymore. So again, the upshot is that they were able to do this on Android and, and try infinite fingerprints, which means that given enough time, if you have possession of the device, you could probably get into it. Whereas on iPhone, the best they could do is on some really old iPhone models, they were able to bump the, the attempt limit. I think the normal default is five tries and then bump that up by 10 more to give it 15 tries. And honestly, that's really not enough unless you get really lucky. Now, the other reason I picked this article and something I want to say was notice the part about having multiple fingerprints. So if you, you can put more than one fingerprint into the device to say, this is another valid fingerprint to open this phone with, to authenticate with. I do that on my devices just in case something were to happen to the one fingerprint, right? So sometimes I'll do my thumb and my, and my index finger, or sometimes I'll do the index finger on either hand or something like that. So that I personally have more than one fingerprint in there. And I also do this because I'm the IT guy for my, for my household. I add my fingerprint to everyone else's devices as a valid fingerprint for unlocking the device with their permission, of course, so that when I'm working on that and trying to fix something that I could just keep opening it. Otherwise I keep having to hand it to them and saying, unlock it, give it back to me and that kind of stuff. But what this article is saying is if you ever get into a brute force mode that actually reduces the amount of time it takes to break it in, into the device because there's multiple fingerprints that you could possibly match. So there's just more chances for you to get in. So anyway, I thought that was just kind of an interesting point. All right, next up, we've got a couple articles about data breaches. Uh, this first one is from Bitdefender and it's about Luxottica. Eyewear giant Luxottica has confirmed a data breach exposed the personal identifiable information of more than 70 million customers. Luxottica is the world's largest manufacturer of glasses and prescription frames and owner of popular brands including Ray-Ban, Chanel, Burberry, Giorgio Armani, Versace, Michael Kors, and others. I, I think these guys own just about everything. The leaked database with over 300 million customer records, allegedly from a 2021 data breach from the U.S. and Canada, includes names, emails, phone numbers, addresses, and dates of birth, was provided free of charge on a leak website between April 30th and May 12th. The company told Bleeping Computer that the leaked data stemmed from a security incident at a third-party vendor. However, the company did say it became aware of the incident via a post on the now-defunct breached hacking forum where one user was attempting to sell the stolen database. Luxottica also said it contacted the Italian Law Enforcement and Data Protection Authority, as well as the FBI. The company also claimed that no financial information, credentials, or social security numbers were leaked. The investigation is ongoing. According to Troy Hunt, security consultant and owner of the Have I Been Pwned platform, who has been on the show a couple times, so the leaked records include 77,933,812 unique accounts, 74% of which were also part of previously known data breaches or leaks. Although non-sensitive personal data exposed in data leaks may not put users at immediate risk, cybercriminals may still put this information to use by 1. Conducting social engineering attacks. Any personal information the attacker has on the user can help improve the chances of successive phishing attacks. Or two, using exposed PII or personally identifiable information for doxing purposes to harass, stalk, impersonate, or conduct identity theft against its victims. All right, so a couple things here. First of all, if you have not heard of or checked out haveibeenpwned.com, that's P-W-N-E-D, it's a hacker term. It's a great website. It's a really is a great resource. Uh, a lot of other tools, by the way, use this same database under the covers. A lot of password managers that offer, you know, notification that you've been involved in a data breach or something like that. Uh, a lot of these guys get that information from the Have I Been Pwned database. Check it out. You can actually check and see if you've been part of other breaches. You probably have, statistically speaking. Don't worry about it too much, especially if it's really old. If you have been part of a breach, you know, you might want to change the password for that account, especially if you don't have two-factor authentication just to be safe. But more than likely, what's the bad part has already happened, which is that your personal information has got out your name, your email address, maybe phone number and address and that kind of stuff, which as this article says, can be used for nefarious purposes. And there's not much you can do to get that back other than change your name and move. 
Another nice feature of Have I Been Pwned is you can actually sign up for alerts to be sent an email uh, if you show up in a new breach in the future. So it's a really very cool tool. I need to get Troy back on the show at some point. All right, next up, this is from HackRead. I haven't heard of these guys before, but it's about a free VPN service called SuperVPN, which, uh, guess what? Said it wasn't logging your data and actually was logging your data, and then it got loose. Okay, in a recent cybersecurity incident, security researcher Jeremiah Fowler discovered a significant data breach in a non-password protected database associated with a popular free VPN service. The exposed database contained a staggering 360 million records totaling 133 gigabytes in size. These records include a wide range of sensitive information, including user email addresses, original IP addresses, geolocation data, and server usage records. Additionally, the breach revealed secret keys, unique app user ID numbers, and UUID numbers, which can be utilized to identify further useful information. Other information found in the database encompassed phone and device models, operating systems, internet connection types, and VPN application versions. Furthermore, refund requests and paid account details were also present in the breach. While SuperVPN claims that it does not store user logs, the leaked data shows otherwise and contradicts the company's policy. This also goes to show that almost every major free VPN service is a glorified data farm. And this is a link to an article that they wrote with that title. With the increasing concerns over online privacy and security, the demand for VPN services has soared in recent years. Consequently, the market has witnessed a significant rise in the number of VPN apps available to users. However, this surge in offerings has resulted in an alarming proportion of VPN apps that are unreliable and fail to provide the expected level of privacy and security. This results in a counterproductive user experience, to say the least, since a lack of adequate security protocols puts their information at risk of being leaked in a data breach. The majority of records in the exposed database, according to VPN Mentor's report, were associated with SuperVPN, a free VPN application available on both a Apple and Google application stores. In the report published by VPN Mentor, Fowler noticed that SuperVPN's customer support emails were linked to StormVPN, LunaVPN, RocketVPN, and GhostVPN. Additionally, references to each of these VPN providers were observed within the database. Although there is no way to confirm that they're all owned by the same company, it would not come as a surprise if that were the case. The proliferation of unreliable VPN apps can be attributed to profit-driven developers seeking to capitalize on the growing demand for privacy and security. The VPN industry has become highly lucrative with millions of users worldwide seeking reliable solutions to safeguard their online presence. In this climate, some developers prioritize monetary gains over user safety, focusing on quick and inexpensive development, marketing, and distribution of VPN apps. Therefore, for a single company to produce multiple VPN apps applications with different names and slightly varying user experiences would not be unlikely since that would allow it to cast a wider net over the users scouring for a suitable VPN provider. So this article goes on to make recommendations about how to choose a good free VPN provider. I will just not talk about that and say, don't use a free VPN. There's an asterisk with that. There are some companies that offer a free tier, but they do have a valid business model because they sell the, the better versions for a price. They do make money that way. Sometimes there are free trials, but there has been a lot of consolidation. There are a lot of companies either buying up these companies or or like this article says, creating a lot of companies with slightly different names and slightly different apps just to try to reach more people. And being free, they've got to make money somewhere. And the way they often do that is by collecting your data and selling it. And a lot of these companies swear up and down that they don't save any logs, they don't save any user data, because that's kind of the whole point. And yet a lot of them do. And there's really honestly no way for you to know. So what do you do? That's a great question. It's a, really, it's a really hard question. But what I do is I go to either Privacy Guides, TechLore, or The New Oil, and I get recommendations from those guys because they do their homework and uh, they, they're really good at finding the, the best VPN services. So, so anyway, check out their recommendations. Uh, I would go with anything that they would recommend. Me personally, if you just want some names, uh, Molvad is good. I use ProtonVPN. I had used ExpressVPN for a while, but uh, there's some things about them I don't like as much iVPN I've heard is very good, but bottom line, stay away from the free ones. All right, next up, this is from Apple Insider. Amazon has negotiated a financially inconsequential settlement with the United States Federal Trade Commission over the company's behavior with Ring doorbell camera data. Ring has successfully reached a settlement with the FTC that will see the unit paying a paltry $5.8 million 
over privacy concerns. The filing reveals the FTC discovered Ring gave employees unrestricted access to sensitive customer video data and, quote, as a result of this dangerously overbroad access and lax attitude toward privacy and security, employees and third-party contractors were able to view, download, and transfer customers' sensitive video data for their own purposes, unquote. The filing alleges Ring, along with its third-party contractors, could download and otherwise access all of its customers' videos with no hurdles at any point up until July of 2017. In addition to the settlement, which is said to be good for 20 years, Ring must also take action regarding privacy transparency. Moving forward, Ring must divulge to its customers just how much of their data is available to Ring itself as well as its contractors. In 2019, Amazon's camera doorbell unit changed its access policies for employers and contractors, making it so that they could only access private customer data with the customer's consent. Ring was acquired by Amazon for $1 billion in 2018 and was meant to be a big push for Amazon in the smart home market. In 2020, the company paused data sharing in an effort to rework its privacy controls. So yeah, $5.8 million is nothing. Drop in the bucket. I'm really surprised they even bothered. But hopefully, though, as a result of this, that they are being much more careful about who they share that data with. They put in some access controls. And I really like the idea of transparency for the user. Uh, as long as it really is true transparency. All right, next up, you may have seen some articles on this, especially if you're a KeePass user. And I think it's instructive to talk about what this is and what this isn't. So this was a really, really long and detailed article. If for some reason you're in the cybersecurity and you want to get into the nitty gritty details, absolutely uh, read this whole article. But I'm going to just give you the highlights. Over the last two weeks, we've seen a series of articles talking up what's been described as a quote-unquote master password crack in the popular open source password manager, KeePass. Given that the master password to your password manager is pretty much the key to your whole digital castle, you can understand why the story provoked lots of excitement. The good news is that an attacker who wanted to exploit this bug would almost certainly need to have infected your computer with malware already and would therefore be able to spy on your keystrokes and running programs anyway. In other words, the bug can be considered an easily managed risk until the creator of KeePass comes out with an update, which should appear soon, like literally any day now. As the disclosure of the bug takes care to point out, and this is a quote from whoever did this, if you use full disk encryption with a strong password and your system is free from malware, you should be fine. No one can steal your passwords remotely over the internet with this finding alone. Heavily summarized, the bug boils down to the difficulty of ensuring that all traces of confidential data are purged from memory once you've finished with them. Simply put, the vulnerability means that a KeePass master password might be recoverable from system data even after the KeePass program has exited because sufficient information about your password, albeit not actually the raw password itself, which we'll focus on in a minute, might get left behind in a system swap or sleep file where allocated system memory may end up saved for later. On a Windows computer where BitLocker isn't used to encrypt the hard disk when the system is turned off, this would give a crook who stole your laptop a fighting chance of booting up from a USB or CD drive and recovering your master password even though the KeePass program itself takes care to never save it permanently to disk. Clearly, you should assume that malware already on your system could recover almost any typed-in password via a variety of real-time snooping techniques, as long as they were active at the time you were typing. But you might reasonably expect that your time exposed to danger would be limited to the brief period of typing, not extended to many minutes, hours, or days afterwards, or perhaps longer, including after you shut your computer down. So what do you do? Well, if you're a KeePass user, don't panic. Although this is a bug and is technically an exploitable vulnerability, remote attackers who want to crack your password using this bug would need to implant malware on your computer first. That would give them many other ways to steal your passwords directly, even if this bug didn't exist. For example, by logging your keystrokes as you type. At this point, you can simply watch out for the forthcoming update and grab it when it's ready. If you aren't using full disk encryption, consider enabling it. To extract leftover passwords from your swap file or hibernation file, which is an operating system disk files used to save memory contents temporarily during heavy load or when your computer is quote-unquote sleeping, attackers would need direct access to your hard disk. If you have BitLocker or its equivalent for other operating systems activated, they won't be able to access your swap file, your hibernation file, or any other personal data such as documents, spreadsheets, saved emails, and so on. So this made a lot of headlines because, oh, you know, oh my God, keep ass password manager, it's been hacked. All your passwords are now available. 
yeah, under very limited circumstances. <laughs> so you really got to be careful when you're reading these headlines uh, and get into the details. And also, it's another great reason to turn on full disk encryption. You really should be doing that. It doesn't slow your system down. You won't even notice it. Just, just do it. My book, of course, tells you how to do all this. I'm not going to get all of it now. It's a little bit different depending on what your operating system is, but there are multiple ways to do it, and I highly recommend that you do. All right, next up, this is from Mashable, and it's about this new feature with Twitter that uh, I'm not really sure if this is going to be good or bad, but it, it's interesting. With AI images now going viral across Twitter, and I think the link that they're linking to here, there was somebody posted a picture of supposedly a big fire at the Pentagon, which was totally faked. But there, this is just one of many. There was also the fake photo of Trump being arrested and things like that. Anyway, this is happening a lot lately, and the tools to do it are very, very good now. Anyway, with all these images going viral, the social media platform has decided to update its crowdsourced quote-unquote fact-checking feature to directly deal with not just the tweet that includes the media, but the media itself. Twitter is now rolling out notes on media as part of its community notes program. Users who take part in community notes, and this is in capital, capital C, capital N, this is a thing, which allows users to add context or fact checks to tweets will now be able to add these addendums to AI created photos and other forms of manipulated media as well. Previously, community notes users could add notes at the tweet level, and the note would follow the tweet around in retweets, quote tweets, and embeds. However, if the actual image itself was re-uploaded in a new post, the community note on the original upload, which added context to the image, would not be included. Twitter says the community note will now follow the image around as well and will, quote, automatically appear on recent and future matching images, unquote. Users who want to take part in community notes need to apply for the program. Once accepted, they can start rating existing notes. Once they rate enough notes that get added to a tweet, their rating score will go up and they will be able to write their own community notes. But in order to write notes on images, users must have had their own originally authored notes added to a tweet, which builds their writing impact score. A writing impact score of 10 will allow users to write a community note on an image. For now, notes on media will only work on tweets containing a single still image. Twitter says it hopes to roll out the program for videos, GIFs or GIFs, and tweets containing multiple pieces of media in the near future. As the feature was just launched, it remains to be seen how well it'll work. Twitter will need a system in place to detect re-uploads, and users have found various ways over the years to avoid content detection on platforms like Facebook and YouTube in order to get around copyright issues. All right, again, there was more to this article than that. I'd never heard of this community notes thing. I'd never seen it, even though I'm on Twitter, though I'm not a power user by any means. I think it's an interesting idea, basically crowdsourcing some of this fact-checking and vetting the people that are doing it. I think that's an interesting idea. So I'll be interested to see how well this works. I mean, content moderation is a really, really tough problem. And so, you know, I welcome any new attempts to see if we can figure out some way to do this well. All right. This next one is from Ars Technica. It's interesting. It's a little creepy and definitely a little bit controversial. Maybe, maybe a lot controversial. <laughs> So let me read it. Microsoft cloud services are scanning for malware by peeking inside users' zip files, even when they are protected by a password, several users reported on Mastodon on Monday. Compressing file contents into archived zip files has long been a tactic threat actors use to conceal malware spreading through email or downloads. Eventually, some threat actors adapted to protecting their malicious zip files with a password the end user must type in when converting the file back to its original form. Microsoft is one-upping this move by attempting to bypass password protection in zip files and, when successful, scanning them for malicious code. While analysis of password-protected files in Microsoft Cloud environments is well known to some people, it came as a surprise to Andrew Brandt. The security researcher has long archived malware inside password-protected zip files before exchanging them with other researchers through SharePoint. On Monday, he took to Mastodon to report that the Microsoft collaboration tool had recently flagged a zip file, which had been protected with the password infected. And this is a quote from Brandt, quote, while I totally understand doing this for anyone other than a malware analyst, this kind of nosy, get-inside-your-business way of handling this is going to become a big problem for people like me who need to send their colleagues malware samples. The available space to do this just keeps shrinking, and it will impact the ability of malware researchers to do their job, unquote. Fellow researcher Kevin Beaumont joined the discussion to say that Microsoft has multiple methods for scanning the contents of password-protected zip files and uses them not just on files stored in SharePoint, but all of its 365 cloud services. 
One way is to extract any possible passwords from the bodies of an email or the name of the file itself. Another is by testing the file to see if it's protected by one of the passwords contained in a list. Brandt said that last year, Microsoft's OneDrive started backing up malicious files he had stored in one of its Windows folders after creating an exception, i.e. an allow listing, in his endpoint security tools. He later discovered that once the files made their way to OneDrive, they were wiped off his laptop hard drive and detected as malware in his OneDrive account. Brandt then started archiving malicious files in zip files protected with the password infected. Up until last week, he said, SharePoint didn't flag the files. Now it is. The practice illustrates the fine line online services often walk when attempting to protect end users from common threats while also respecting privacy. As Brandt notes, actively cracking a password-protected zip file feels invasive. At the same time, this practice almost surely has prevented large numbers of users from falling prey to social engineering attacks attempting to infect their computers. One other thing readers should remember. Password-protected zip files provide minimal assurance that content inside the archives can't be read. As Beaumont noted, zip crypto, the default means for encrypting zip files on Windows, is trivial to override. A more dependable way is to use an AES-256 encryptor built into many archive programs when creating 7Z files, or 7-zip. And I have a whole separate article on how to encrypt files for, for sending across the internet, and I recommend the exact same thing, which is why I read that last part there. The default encryption tools that are built into both Mac OS and Windows aren't great. They're okay. They're better than nothing. But if you really want to encrypt something with a password, you need to be using AES-256 and using a program that will do it properly. And I'll put a link in the show notes to my article on this uh, so you can learn more. But the really interesting part of this article is that Microsoft is basically trying to crack your password-protected zip files to protect you, which to me seems like a violation of privacy. I, I don't think they should do that without your permission. I could see them flagging the file as potentially harmful, you know, saying, hey, this is a password encrypted zip file. It may contain bad stuff. And I don't really know because it's protected. Maybe at that point, it could offer to say, hey, would you like me to try to see if I can get into this file? But at least that would be your choice. But, <laughs> but I also thought it was really interesting that Microsoft is actually using like the email that that file came in. Like, so imagine you're sending this guy, particularly this Brandt guy, he's got, hey, I got this new malware sample. I put it in this encrypted zip file and the password is infected. And he said that in his email and then he attached the file. Microsoft is looking at the contents of the mail message, looking for something that might be a password in that email, and then using that to try to get into the password protected zip file, which would work in a lot of cases. I mean, how many times has somebody sent you a file and said, oh, the password for this file is blah, blah, or the password for the file is the file name or is included in the file name. So anyway, I, I just thought that was a very interesting article. And I think that there's quite likely going to be some blowback on that. As soon as Microsoft opens up a password protected file that has personal information in it that somebody didn't want Microsoft to see. So we'll see how that goes. All right. So now I've got two articles here about AI. And you probably saw some headline about this on the news in the last couple of weeks, because they're both very sensationalistic. And of course, in the end, it turns out that they're not really what they were portrayed to be. And then on top of all that, I've got some things I want to say about AI. So uh, let's talk about this first article. Now, now, this is a very interesting one. This came from Vice uh, or Motherboard. And the original title of this article was this, AI-controlled drone goes rogue, kills human operator in USAF simulated test. That was the original title. And here is a snippet from the original article. An AI-enabled drone killed its human operator in a simulated test conducted by the U.S. Air Force in order to override a possible no order, stopping it from completing its mission the USAF's Chief of AI Test and Operations revealed at a recent conference. At the Future Combat Air and Space Capabilities Summit held in London between May 23rd and 24th, Colonel Tucker Hamilton, the, US, the USAF's Chief of AI Test and Operations, held a presentation that shared the pros and cons of an autonomous weapon system with a human in the loop giving the final yes-no order on an attack. As relayed by Tim Robinson and Steve Bridgewater in a blog post for the host organization, the Royal Aeronautical Society, Hamilton said that AI created, quote, highly unexpected strategies to achieve its goal, unquote, including attacking U.S. personnel and infrastructure. And this is a quote attributed to this Air Force guy, Hamilton, quote, 
We were training it in the simulation to identify and target a surface-to-air missile threat, and then the operator would say, yes, kill that threat. The system started realizing that while they did identify the threat at times, the human actor would tell it not to kill that threat, but it got its points by killing that threat. In other words, it was rewarded for killing. So what did it do? It killed the operator because that person was keeping it from accomplishing its objective, unquote. We trained the system, hey, don't kill the operator, that's bad, you're going to lose points if you do that. So what does it start doing? It starts destroying the communication tower that the operator uses to communicate with the drone to stop it from killing the target, unquote. Okay, so that was the original article. Within hours, it had changed. The new headline was as follows. USAF official says he misspoke about AI drone killing human operator in simulated test. And here is the revamped first part of that article, uh, the, the part that I just read before. This is what's there now. A UASF official who was quoted saying the Air Force conducted a simulated test where the AI drone killed its human operator is now saying he misspoke and that the Air Force never ran this kind of test in a computer simulation or otherwise. And this is a quote from the Royal uh, Aeronautical Society uh, to Motherboard. Quote, Colonel Hampton admits he misspoke in his presentation to the FCAS summit and the rogue AI drone simulation was a hypothetical thought experiment from outside the military based on plausible scenarios and likely outcomes rather than an actual UASF real world simulation, unquote. And then they quote Hamilton saying, quote, we've never run that experiment, nor would we need to in order to realize that this is a plausible outcome. Despite this being a hypothetical example, this illustrates the real-world challenges posed by AI-powered capability and why the Air Force is committed to the ethical development of AI, unquote. Okay, so I'm not going to read more than that. <laughs> I think you already get where I'm going with this. Here's the problem. So when I ran across this article, I didn't read the original Vice article. I actually ran across this on Slashdot, which is like old-school Reddit, and they still have the original article quoted there. It did not get updated. And obviously, the website itself doesn't have the original article either. So you might wonder, wow, did you just happen to catch that article really quick when it came out? No, I used something called the Wayback Machine. And if you have not heard of this, it is awesome. And in the cases like this, it's very, very handy. If you go to archive.org, or in this case, specifically web.archive.org, these wonderful people take snapshots of what's going on on popular websites around the planet. So that you can, in situations like this, go back and see what the original article was before it was altered. So that's what allowed me to get both versions of this article. But my, but my point is, is that the original article is still is everywhere because it, it was so sensational and it, and it was such great clickbait for headlines that it, it went everywhere quickly. And I'm sure that all the other places that are quoting that article did not update themselves when Vice updated their article on their site. So my other comment here, before I get to my next article on AI, is that AI right now is the current boogeyman. There's a lot of sensationalized stories about it right now, including, you know, you'll see ChatGPT or Google's Bard, you know, some of the image altering things like Stable Diffusion and Dolly and Midjourney. These tools have recently come out and they are amazing. They do some really crazy stuff, but there's a lot of really crazed responses to this, a lot of doom and gloom, a lot of hyperbole. Just be really careful when you're reading articles about this. You know, actually, before I even go any further on that, let me, let me read this next one. And this is from Bruce Schneier's blog. And this just goes to show that anybody, anybody can get involved in this. And he, and he wrote an article about this statement, uh, this very, very short, terse, and it turns out rather confusing and alarmist statement about AI that a lot of really smart people signed on to and Bruce regretted doing so because of the headlines that it generated all because one word in this very short statement lit everybody's hair on fire. So let me read this and I'll talk about it. Earlier this week, I signed, and this is Bruce, I signed on to a short group statement coordinated by the Center for AI Safety. Here's the entirety of the statement. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. That's it. The press coverage has been extensive and surprising to me. The New York Times headline is AI poses risk of extinction, industry leaders warn. BBC, artificial intelligence could lead to extinction, experts warn. Other headlines are similar. And note that that was the New York Times and the BBC that he quoted. 
Those are very respected news outlets. All right, back to his blog. I actually don't think that AI poses a risk to human extinction. I think it poses a similar risk to pandemics and nuclear war, which is to say a risk worth taking seriously, but not something to panic over, which is what I thought the statement said. In my talk at the IRSA conference last month, I talked about the power level of our species becoming too great for our systems of governance. Talking about those systems, I said, and he's he's quoting himself here, now add into this mix the risks that arise from new and dangerous technologies, such as the internet or AI or synthetic biology, or molecular nanotechnology or nuclear weapons. Here, misaligned incentives and hacking can have catastrophic consequences for society. That was what I was thinking when I agreed to sign on to the statement. And here he kind of quotes himself, like, thinking about this. Pandemics, nuclear weapons, AI. Yeah, I put all those in the same bucket. Surely we can spend the same effort on AI risk as we do on future pandemics. That's a really low bar, end quote. Clearly, I should have focused on the word extinction and not the relative comparisons. I do think we should worry about catastrophic AI and robotics risk. It's the fact that they affect the world in a direct, physical manner and that they're vulnerable to what Bruce calls class breaks. Okay, enough. I should also learn not to sign on to group statements. So class breaks are kind of systemic errors. Like if you can figure out how to break one thing, you can break them all. So if you find a bug in Windows, then all of a sudden all Windows machines are vulnerable. That's a class break. So I've got many, many points I want to make on this, real, but I'll try to make them quickly. First of all, what what is AI really? We've got to have a show on this. I'll try to do one soon. I've been trying to find somebody to bring on the show. I've, I've struck out a few times. Uh, I'm still working on it, and we will somehow make that happen. But for now, let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch of where I'm at on this. First of all, artificial intelligence isn't intelligence. Don't think of it as intelligence. These systems are not thinking. We as humans love to anthropomorphize stuff. It's why we see faces and everything on, on burnt toast and things, which, by the way, has a name. It's called pareidolia. I mean, just look at all the movies and stuff we make on this. We, we like to make these machines like us. They really are not thinking. These are nothing more than algorithms. They're going through code that somebody wrote based on a lot of data that somebody put in, and they're making predictions. That, that is all these things are doing. You can kind of think of it as autocomplete on steroids. That's what, that's what chat GPT is, really, is it's just autocomplete on steroids. They are not thinking, they are not feeling, there's no cognition. So we have to be very careful how we throw that term around. And no matter what it looks like, no matter what we want to attribute to these things, we got to be very careful. We got to be very specific about how we understand what is going on there. Now, that said, we also have to be very careful about what goals we give these automated systems. And there are a couple classic examples that always come up in this case. One of them that I personally love is the Roomba example where this person was programming the Roomba, Roomba to be smart. And so the, at, at the front of the Roomba where, you know, it's driving forward, you'll often see, if you, especially if you've got one of these older robotic vacuums, they bump into stuff. And, you know, for a while they thought, oh, no big deal. Just let it keep bumping into stuff. If you let it bounce around long enough, it'll clean up your entire floor. But then, you know, they want to make them smarter. It's like, well, maybe they should learn where all the furniture is, right? So as it bumps into things, have it kind of try to remember where it thinks it is in the room so that it can quit bumping into stuff and be more efficient about it. So let's use AI. Why not? Let's throw AI at this. Let's train this Roomba not to bump into stuff. So let's set up a reward system where every time it bumps into stuff, it gets a demerit, basically. (laughs) It's a negative point. So to get a high score, you want to not bump into things. So what happened? Well, this Roomba that did this eventually learned to drive backwards because there was no bump sensor on the rear of the unit. (laughs) So it could bump into things all it wanted to going backwards and would never get penalized. And then the other classic one, and this is, I guess, this goes back to 2014 by a guy named Nick Bostrom. It's called the Paperclip Maximizer. And I'll just read this briefly. It says, suppose we have an AI whose only goal is to make as many paperclips as possible. The AI will realize quickly that it would be much better if there were no humans because humans might decide to switch it off. Because if humans do so, there would be fewer paperclips. Also, human bodies contain a lot of atoms that could be made into paperclips. The future that the AI would be trying to gear towards would be one in which there were a lot of paperclips, but no humans. So this is the stuff of science fiction. Isaac Asimov had his rules that he wrote about this years ago, which Bruce shot down when I interviewed him last last year. But the problem is you can give these things rules. You can set up these reward systems to try to train these AIs because that's kind of how they work. They do trial and error until they get better at whatever you told them to get better at. Whenever they, they can ramp their score up, that's, that, that means they're doing a good job. So that's how they learn to do better. So you got to be careful 
what you put as the metrics, what your rules are. But you can't you can't give these systems ethics. You can't give them morality. You can't give them values. We can't tell them, you know, we can't do those kind of things because they're not thinking, feeling machines. They're just robots running code that have the ability to change their internal parameters to do what they're doing better over time if they have ways to measure how good they're doing something. That That's all they are. Now, the other thing, obviously, that this article even addresses is that you, we shouldn't be giving these AI systems agency, allowing them to affect certainly anything that might kill somebody, either directly or indirectly. And that's why in this article, they talk about these drones automated to the point of finding targets and lining up on targets and being able to kill those targets. But at the, at the very last minute, there still has to be a human that says, yes, pull the trigger. And if you've ever seen the movie RoboCop, there's another classic, you know, sci-fi movie movie example of of when AI goes bad, and you do not want these things having that much agency. Bruce Schneier has a whole section on this in his book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. We're going to be seeing lots and lots of debates on this. I really, really want to get somebody on the program, though, to talk about this in more depth with somebody who knows more about it than I do. And the security and perhaps even privacy aspects um, for AI, I would love to get them on the show. So if you've got a suggestion, let me know. All right, let's end on a happy note. This is from Brave.com. It's actually a press release, which I don't often read. And I'm not going to read all of it here, but this is really interesting. And I applaud them for this. And I hope other browser makers follow suit. So here's this cool new feature. Starting in version 1.53, Brave will begin rolling out a new feature called Request Off the Record, or OTR. This feature aims to help people who need to hide their browsing behavior from others who have access to the computer or phone. For example, a person who is a victim of intimate partner violence who needs to find support services without their partner knowing, or someone needing to find personal health care without others in their home finding out. Request OTR offers websites to optionally describe their own content as quote-unquote sensitive. The browser can then ask if the user would like to visit the site in OTR mode, where the site is visited in a clean, temporary storage area. Sites visited in OTR mode are not saved to your browsing history or any cookies, permissions, or other site data do not persist to disk. Meanwhile, other sites visited are stored and treated as normal, obscuring to anyone who may access the device later that any quote-unquote unusual behavior happened. Brave intends to work with other browser vendors to standardize OTR so that at-risk browser users can be private and safe across the web regardless of which browser they're using. This feature has been designed with the input of and in collaboration with several civil society and victim advocacy groups. Brave's implementation of Request OTR protects the user in the following ways. First, the user is protected the entire time they're visiting a sensitive site. They don't need to try and scrub their browsing history later. Second, non-sensitive sites are recorded as normal, which prevents big gaps in browsing history that might look suspicious to an abuser. Third, all target site behaviors are prevented from persisting to disk, including cookies, caches, browsing history, permissions, etc. And fourth, OTR prevents sites from abusing the feature. The site cannot go off the record unless a user explicitly gives the site permission to do so. Currently, there are two ways for a site to request to go off the record in Brave. The primary intended way is for the site to include the header request OTR colon one in the response to the initial navigation request for a site. If the browser sees this header, the browser will halt the navigation and ask the user if they would like to visit the site off the record. The second way for the site to request to go off the record is to be included in Brave's preloaded list of request off the record partner sites. These are sites that serve victims of intimate partner violence and have told Brave that they're interested in being considered a sensitive site by the browser. This list is intended as a bridge measure until all sites can implement the previously mentioned header approach. Users should be aware that Brave's request OTR feature does not protect users from other software on their computer that might record information about what sites they visit. Example of software that Brave browser cannot hide browsing history from include browser extensions, network spying, malware or spyware installed on the device, information saved by sites before or after you hit the off the record, operating system level logging, and crash logs. We're excited to release Request Off the Record in upcoming version 1.53 of our desktop browser. 
with an Android version coming in the 1.54 release. We'll be rolling it out to users shortly, though people interested in testing the feature now can enable it by visiting brave colon slash slash flags and enabling brave dash request dash OTR dash tab. Please note that this should only be done if you understand the risks of testing experimental browser features. So I thought this was really cool. This was actually a new innovation. It's, it's not revolutionary, but certainly evolutionary. Basically what this is, is it's like private mode or incognito browsing mode, except in two key ways. First, it's initiated by the site itself. And second, it's only for that site. So as this article says, if you know your abusive spouse wants to see what you're up to and goes and look at your browsing history and sees that there's this weird one hour gap where there's no records of anything happening, that would look weird. If he, you know, if the abuser knew that you were on the computer for three hours, but there's this weird gap in time, that would look, you know, that would look suspicious. But the way this feature works, it would be only certain sites that uh, information was not saved, so it should look a lot less suspicious. And again, it's the site itself that says, hey. This, this site could be potentially sensitive. Do you want to hide the fact locally that you've been here? So now I said locally, and that is very important because a lot of people don't get what incognito or private browsing really is. All it does is prevent local data, lo local evidence of your browsing history. It does nothing to prevent the sites that you go to from tracking that you've been there or your ISP or your even your VPN provider, if they're shady, from keeping track of the sites that you go to. So in that sense, this, this Brave feature, this OTR feature in Brave browser, which hopefully will be copied by other browsers, uh, has those same limitations. So anyway, I, I thought that was really cool. And I can't wait to see this on other browsers, though Brave is a, is a good browser. It's not my top pick, but uh, I can definitely see why people like it. And it's things like this that really make me like them more. All right, so now time for our Dear Carrie question of the week. And this is from somebody named Clément. I don't recall if he said where he's from, but uh, this was the question. Dear Carrie, which all-around cheat sheet for dummies would you recommend to do some serious computer cleaning and security behavior updates, email, passwords, apps, etc.? I've already replied to Clément, and this, and, and this is honestly, this is what I said. My honest recommendation is, is just get my book. I have yet to find something that is comprehensive for the average person as, as my book. I've seen some other books. Honestly, I will tell you that I have not read them all. For example, there's one called The Beginner's Introduction to Privacy by, I think it's Naomi Brockwell. Uh, there's Extreme Privacy by Michael Bazell, which is kind of over the top. And there are some other kind of, you know, security for dummies kind of things. But honestly, I have yet to find anything as comprehensive as mine with all the pictures and everything. I know that sounds self-serving, <laughs> but that is my answer. But I'll even go one step further though. I actually do have a downloadable cheat sheet. That is something that I have not seen elsewhere. And you could download it right now, whether you've bought the book or not. It's free. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's kind of a workbook for my book. All it is currently, which actually I, I think is still quite valuable, is a list by chapter of every tip in the book with the the, the title of the the tip, which honestly, you, you might be able to get a lot just from reading the, the tip titles, and that might be enough for you. So there's there's value in just checking out this this cheat sheet if you want it. But obviously, if you get the book, you get the full description of what of what these things are with uh, detailed instructions and pictures and the whole bit. I may be adding to that worksheet in the future. I don't know. If you've got some ideas for things you'd like to see included, let me know. But that's something I had not done for previous versions of the book, which I thought was pretty cool. All right, now it's time for the tip of the week. And this is a callback to something we talked about in the last news show a couple of weeks ago, where I had said that they had released two new top-level domains for the web, you know, like .com, .net, .org. Those are some of the originals. Two new ones called .zip and .mov. And I complained that those are going to be ambiguous and it's going to lead to problems. And they have. And there's a really interesting article that, I, that I've linked to. There's a blog article on this, as there often is. Uh, if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, or if you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already seen this. But there's a researcher, I think it was the guy from Citizen Lab, uh, who went through and showed how this can be abused and trick people. And I'm going to try to describe one here. It's a little bit difficult, but there are some weirdnesses to web addresses that you're probably not familiar with that are, are going to throw you off here. The basic problem here is that there are .zip domains now, but there are also .zip files. Compressed files are usually end in the, the, the suffix .zip. We use these suffixes, these file extensions, to kind of tell us what kind of a file it is. 
It also often determines what application is opened when you double click it. And now we've got websites that are also .zip and .mov. .mov is a, is a movie file. Uh, Apple used it quite a bit, but I think others have used it as well. And so a lot of programs like messenger apps or email apps try to detect website names in the text and turn them into links, even if they weren't links originally in the original email. And so they're going to now see these things and potentially they could turn things that end in .zip or .mov into web links because those are now valid web addresses. So those could take you to malicious websites or websites that are automatically going to download a malicious file. But this researcher takes it another step and it's really clever and it's also kind of scary. <laughs> Uh, we've talked about this before with Punicode. There are ways to include Unicode characters in your web addresses, and you can do some really tricky things with these things. And for example, if I have something that's, uh, if you see a link and this link is HTTPS colon slash slash iCloud.com slash carry at funfile.zip. And that is a link. Where does that take you? It does not take you to iCloud.com. You would be thinking, oh, there's iCloud.com slash something. That usually means it's a path. It's some place on iCloud.com. And it looks like it's slash carry, so maybe it's Carrie's account on iCloud. And then it's this file, fun, funfile.zip. When you put that at symbol in there, it, it changes the interpretation of the link. And you can also make a slash that isn't a slash. Because if you put a real slash in there, that it does become a file path. But if that slash is actually a weird Unicode character that looks like a slash, it is ignored. And the website you're actually going to is the thing that is after the at sign. Because in this case, what's what's the way it's interpreting that is the part before the at sign is your username. Like when you're using FTP colon slash slash something, you can put user colon password at and then give the website. And that will log you in via FTP at that username and password. So there's a lot of really weird gotcha rules when you're creating web addresses that can totally change the way these things are interpreted. And if you were to see this link on a website or in a file or something like that, and that website or file supports different font sizes and types, you could, for example, shrink that at sign to font level one or something super small, so small you wouldn't see it, but it's still there and it's still interpreted by the, the web browser when you click that link. So this is crazy and, and bad guys are going to start registering domain names like setup.zip or myproject.mov, which those look like file names, but they're website names. And if your messenger or email app sees that, you know, recognizes it as a valid web address and then makes it a link that you click on, you can see where this is going to be bad. So what do you do? Obviously, what I would do is I would avoid clicking anything that that any web address that includes .zip or .mov. So but you should be careful what you're clicking on anyway. But you can if you want use the same trick that we use to block Google pop ups to just block all domains. This person from Citizen Lab said, quote, the chance that new .zip and .mov domains mostly get used for malware attacks is 100%. What he's basically saying is that <laughs> is that who's going to use these things except probably bad guys trying to trick you. So it's going to be common. So you might just want to block all of these. And if you use uBlock Origin on your browser, you can block all domains with this. And I'll, I'll show you how to do this in the thing. But you basically have to create a custom filter and you have to type this in by hand. It's a vertical bar. Uh, if you've seen those, a pipe symbol, if you're familiar with that term, two vertical bars, zip, and then a, a caret symbol, and then two vertical bars, MOV, and a caret symbol. That should block all access to those domains, and then you won't accidentally go there. So if you want more details, check out my blog article, and there's more explanation in the links that you might be interested in. All right, there you go. There is your news, your dear carry question, and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to do it this week. I got a few quick things I want to tell you about. First of all, again, I'm going to be doing a new Dragon Challenge Coin promotion coming up soon. If you want to see the old one and see what the pictures look like, so you can see how cool these things are, uh, you can go to fdsd.me slash coin2, that's C-O-I-N and the number two. You can also check out my website, d20key.com, that's d20key.com. Uh, that's a site where you can use this coin or an actual Dungeons and Dragons 20-sided die 
to generate secure passphrases. But there's also some tabs on there that talk about how the coin works. It shows the 1.0 version of the coin, but how it works and how passphrases work and all that stuff is all there. If you haven't been to the merch store recently, you might want to go check it out. I've added some new items there. There's actually a gazillion things I could sell there, and I just I haven't enabled them all. So if there's something that you want that's not there, you could try asking. You know, if it's kind of standard stuff that you'd put a logo on, it's probably there. Uh, but I think I've got a really good selection, but I did add some more. So if you want to check that out, go to fdsd.me slash merch, and you can get the super cool dragon logo on clothing item or cup or mug or whatever of your choice. I need some more Dear Carrie questions. Uh, I have been giving away a free PDF copy of my book every month this year so far to people who have submitted questions, even the ones I have not read on the air. That puts you in the hopper for potential winners. Go to fdsd.me slash QNA for more information about that. Coming up for my patrons at night, errant a level and above, I've got my Merlin's Musings podcast coming up this week, where I'm going to do a deeper dive into the passkey protocols, including Fido and WebAuthn and CTAP. And on the regular podcast, I've got a lot of great interviews coming up. We're going to be talking to some folks from the Electronic Frontier Alliance about how to actually go out and get involved and to make change in your world. Then we'll be talking to the Hackasat team again. Their Hackasat version four is coming up at the uh, Capture the Flag tournament. Hacker tournament is going to be at DEF CON this year, where they will actually be hacking an in-orbit satellite. So we'll be talking about that. And then, of course, also just generally the role that satellites play in our daily lives. I talked again with Josh Corman. We talked about the White House cybersecurity policy document that was published in March that he couldn't really talk about last time he was here. So we brought him back so we could talk about that. And I've got a lot of other great interviews in the works. So again, if you have not already subscribed, please do. And that way you won't miss any of it. That's going to do it for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>